You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. This episode is a recording of our event, Report Launch for the Canadian Women Leaders Digital Defense Initiative. Hello, everyone. My name is Kyle Matthews. I'm Executive Director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. We're very pleased to invite you today to an important uh, event, um, which is the uh, report launch of the Canadian Women Leaders Digital Defense Initiative. Uh, this project uh, was supported by the Government of Canada, in particular by uh, the Canadian Department of Heritage through their Digital Citizens Initiative. And we saw over the course of this project, um, we brought together leading Canadian um, women working in politics and in the media and we held a series of roundtables uh, across the country to hear, get their different perspectives about what was their experience in social media, how did online harms targeting them, what was the nature of them, how it impacted their career, how it impacted them after, and 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 also hearing uh, from from them about about young Canadians trying to young women that are trying to get into these fields and and what the social media um, atmosphere uh, has an impact on them and and it was a fascinating project and so today we're here joined by um, three guests uh, we have Lucina Dimeco who's a co-founder of She Persisted and Christina Wilfor also a co-founder of She Persisted both uh, Lucina and Christina uh, authored the white paper um, it's going to be up online and we're going to email it to everyone who registered and we're also very lucky to have with us today uh, Dr. Julia Rosetti who is the Global Director of Research at the International Center for Journalists. And she just launched a really important report for UNESCO on online um, disinformation attacks against um, female journalists across the planet. So we have three of the world's top experts here to discuss this issue, this problem, and but also to look really look into the Canadian side, um, to look into what's happening in the Canadian um, in the Canadian environment and, and is there anything specific to the Canadian um, story. Um, so like to first ask both Lucina and Christina will have five minutes each, five, six minutes each to talk about the problem and what they found in doing this work and looking at, at Canadian uh, case studies. And it'll be followed by uh, opening comments from Dr. Julie Posetti. So Lucina, the floor is all yours. Thank you so much, Kyle. It was such a pleasure to have the opportunity of working with you on this report and on really looking at the online harms against women and particularly women in politics in Canada. So what we found here is that really women in politics in Canada are really being the targets of um, an overwhelming amount of hate and disinformation campaigns. Um, There is a very well-known case, for example, of Canadian Environments Minister Catherine McKenna, who was really the target of massive um, hate campaigns that had very real consequences for her life. And she had, as a result, uh, to receive special, special security to protect herself and her life. And it's just one example of the many that we can see of how uh, disinformation online targeting uh, women and women in politics can in fact lead to danger uh, to their lives, to their families. Even when it gets, when it doesn't get to that, what we heard over and over, and I really think that in this respect, um, the roundtables were 
just such an exceptional opportunity to hear from women in politics how disinformation campaigns and hate campaigns were impacting them in their lives. We heard over and over them describing the impact that the the hate hateful messages that they were receiving online uh, had very traumatic effects for them for their lives made, made them feel scared uh, had a, took a devastating toll on their mental health we heard journalists saying that they were really concerned that their private information and where they lived would be found and they would be in fact um you know attacked in their homes and we also heard, uh, for example, Tamara Taggart, um, a woman journalist um, and, and federal parliament candidate that I had the pleasure to be on a panel with, saying really strong words about how had, she had been really the target of relentless gaslighting and politically motivated trolling, that this trolling was most often led by her political opponents. And as a result, she was actually saying she would discourage any woman from considering a political career as a result of, of the vitriol that women face online. This is uh, an immense problem. It's certainly not a problem that only affects Canada, but, you know, it if not um, really tackled, it has the potential of throwing us back decades in the fight for gender equality. Canada is, again, not alone in um, being uh, an example, unfortunately, of the type of disinformation and hate that women face. And just to leave you with a few facts that help us understand the broader context, in the US and the UK alone, we know that a female politician or candidate is harassed on Twitter every 30 seconds. Last year in the U.S., false claims about vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris were being shared at least 3,000 times per hour on Twitter. And a global survey of women parliamentarians found that nearly 50% of them had seen extremely humiliating or sexually charged images uh, of them spread through social media. So this is, this is the landscape uh, that we see globally, and we unfortunately see it re being reflected in Canada. Thank you very much, uh, Lucina, for those opening comments and an overview of, of, of what you found in, in, in this work. Um, I'd now like to ask Christina to, to talk, um, to take the floor. Yes, and thank you so much for putting the energy into such a documentation of this situation. The picture Lucina just painted is pretty grim, um, but one that is essential to shine some light on. After all, a, a well-defined problem is half the solution. So here's how I would look at the situation. As, as researchers and academics, advocates and journalists, we really have to be careful not to have a sexist response to gender disinformation and thus limit our creativity in designing real remedies. And what I mean by a sexist response is to assume that this is the cost of being involved in politics or the cost of life as a reporter. I believe we can do better by women and the future of our democracies around the globe really depend on it. Um, and we're looking at Canada really, I think for leadership on these issues, especially given the country's high level of commitment to gender equality and a feminist foreign policy. 
So the good news is that in the context of Canada, there's wide agreement that online harms need to be addressed and mitigated. And there's a growing demand for the government to step in and establish standards that can further protect citizens. Introduction of federal legislation to address social media is imminent. And the debate around this framework and the law is still ongoing, um, which we see as extremely positive. But this requires us really to sophisticate our understanding of what's really going on here and hold and who holds the levers of control. As Lucina pointed out, while sexist attitudes are integral to understanding gender disinformation and online abuse as documented in the white paper, social norms alone don't explain how attacks against women in politics have become so pervasive. So it doesn't surprise us that this kind of abuse is going on in Canada. It's really part of the patterns we see in illiberal and liberal democracies all over the world, unfortunately. What's troubling, though, is that even in a country with such a high level of commitment to gender equality that has prioritized political leadership, women themselves are increasingly feeling in a situation that is so dire that they are reporting regretting to run for office or wanting to exit from public life or discouraging other women or girls from getting involved. And that it paints a very troubling picture. So what the opportunity for Canada is right now is to provide that leadership, to show that disinformation can be tackled in a thoughtful way and get underneath the business models that are monetizing this type of extremism. So let's put the proper context for today's conversation, uh, which is, you know, too often left out of discussions around disinformation. We, we tend to focus on, you know, what's wrong with us as a society that we're so polarized or hateful towards each other. And that framing misses a critical point uh, that's elaborated in the white paper. It is really the algorithmic preferences and business models that incentivize fake and outrageous content at the expense of social cohesion and inclusivity. And this is what allows attacks to be weaponized. So it's why remedies like media literacy to build public immunity against misogyny and promote critical thinking are not going to curtail hate and gender disinformation. Misogynistic content in particular is designed to tap into emotionally loaded implicit bias against women in power. And it's unlikely that fact checking and media literacy will have any impact on altering this type of content or its emotional effect on people. So in order to really address gender disinformation and online abuse against women in politics, it's instead essential to dive into the incentive structure that allows for this type of content to thrive and devise regulatory mechanisms that social media platforms establish in order to create better standards for consumers. And I think this paper goes a little bit of ways to illustrating what some of those options are. Thank you, Christina, for really summarizing these key points and talking about the business models and, and the algorithms. I think that's very often um, not uncovered. And so we really appreciate um, the work and the analysis. And for those of you that want to see the white paper, it's on issue.com. But it was also just tweeted from MIGS's Twitter account, MIGS Institute. So it's on Twitter right now. You can check it out. But we will email everyone who's following online. But I would now like to turn to Dr. Julie Posetti. Uh, Julie, you've done some amazing work on these issues on a global level. 
I would love to hear your thoughts on 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 this problem. Thanks. Well, um, first of all, congratulations for for doing such a, a great job. Um, you know, a really thoughtful analysis has just been presented that highlights um, some of the key challenges and struggles uh, for women in public life, whether that's human rights defenders, political actors, or journalists. And and my work currently focuses on women journalists around the world. So um, we've we're in the process of finishing a very big study that's been running for nearly two years, um, commissioned by UNESCO, uh, one of the UN agencies uh, that deals with uh, culture and education and communications, um, and particularly is focused on the safety of journalists. Um, and this study has involved a survey of um, around a thousand journalists internationally. It has also involved um, long form interviews with 173 uh, journalists and uh, human rights defenders and experts, for, um, including those from civil society. Uh, and on top of that, we have conducted um, big data analysis focused on two journalists, one in the developed West and one in the global South. Maria Ressa, the celebrated uh, American Filipino journalist, um, is, is featured in one of those case studies. And Carol Cadwallader, who is a prominent investigative reporter and columnist uh, with The Guardian, um, who blew the lid off uh, the Cambridge Analytica scandal um, is the other focus of uh, our big data case studies. And they um, saw us uh, particularly uh, closely collaborating with colleagues at the University of Sheffield, um, computer scientists and linguists to analyze over two and a half million uh, social media posts. Um, Facebook and Twitter were the main sites for that analysis. So let me turn to uh, what we found, um, and I'll draw also on 15 country case studies that um, we're finalising at the moment uh, for the, the book-length version of this study, which comes out. But what I share with you is already in the public domain. Um, it's the key findings uh, shared at the, at the global level, um, and we published a report detailing these findings for World Press Freedom Day in May. I'll share a link in the chat and I'm sure uh, our colleagues organising this will also um, email uh, links to the report for, for everybody. But we found, among other things, that 73% uh, of the women journalists who participated in our survey said they had experienced online violence. Another key statistic, and I won't overwhelm you with them, but I think the numbers are pretty powerful, so they're worth sharing. Another statistic, we found 20% of uh, women journalists said they had experienced offline harassment, attacks and abuse that they believed had been seeded or instigated online. So what we demonstrate there is a direct correlation between online violence and offline attacks and harassment. Significantly, too, we found um, one of the dominant groups identified as the main instigators and amplifiers um, of misogynistic and hate speech based attacks on women journalists um, internationally were political actors, um, which is, as your colleagues have just demonstrated, uh, unfortunately a trend which is not limited um, to fragile or despotic um, leadership states, uh, sorry, despotic states or um, fragile states as well. Um, it is a trend that is being experienced internationally, including in 
what we used to refer to as liberal democracies, where populism has been on the rise um, over the past five or so years. In particular, um, our interviewees highlighted Donald Trump in the US, uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, President Duterte in the Philippines, for example, as some of the key uh, instigators and amplifiers. But they also identified political party members, um, partisan media organisations, government officials and a whole range of other um, uh, political actors who were involved in these campaigns. And campaigns, they often were. So 41% of our respondents uh, to the survey said they'd experienced online violence that they believed was connected to an orchestrated disinformation campaign. And while the top uh, reporting beat or round, if you like, the focus of uh, the journalism uh, that was being done identified in connection with um, pylons or uh, large-scale attacks against women journalists, while gender-based issues, which includes um, sexual violence and reproductive rights, along with trans issues and a, and a whole bunch of other um, connected themes, while that was the number one identified um, trigger for uh, accentuated online attacks internationally, disinformation uh, was identified as, and, and politics and elections uh, were identified as among the top triggers as well. And we're seeing in the context of disinformation increasing attacks that are connected to uh, conspiracy communities online, particularly um, on the rise in reference to the pandemic, and also uh, the rise of the far right that's particularly evident in North America. Um, additionally, just to echo some of the findings um, of uh, my Canadian colleagues, the experience of uh, women journalists in terms of mental health impacts is devastating. Um, there is no doubt that this strategy of seeking to silence women journalists is partly successful on the basis of either chilling their critical reporting or their social media activity um, or inflicting injuries that are very serious, even if they're not offline physical attacks. The mental health impacts include PTSD, they include serious psychological injury that we need to acknowledge um, as, as a product of their work and as something that is unten untenable and unacceptable. We also, as you found, um, concluded that while news organisations need to do better and more uh, work to try to mitigate the impacts um, of online violence on women journalists, which works to an extent uh, when you have um, journalists attached to you know, large news organisations or particular um, brands that have the resources to help defend them. It doesn't work for freelance journalists, uh, for example. But regardless of how much more and how much better news organisations do, we have a particular challenge um, to confront, which is, as you've said already, connected to the role of social media platforms as the enablers or the vectors for this crisis in online violence, which is, as I say, very much a, a global scourge. Um, and so addressing the failures at the design level within these platforms, which are connected to business models um, and the resistance to addressing these problems has to be partly attributed uh, to the reluctance to affect massive profits uh, by some of the most profitable uh, companies in the world. 
Um, Facebook came out looking particularly bad um, in our research, unfortunately. Uh, it's also the most prolifically used platform around the world among journalists. So those are some of the, um, the key findings uh, from our research um, and some of the, the other global trends to note um, are the fact that the online violence experienced by women journalists becomes exponentially uh, worse in terms of incidents and impacts when you factor in forms of discrimination at the intersection of sexism and misogyny. So women of colour, um, women who practise minority religions, um, women who are subject uh, to sectarian abuse in countries such as Northern Ireland, for example, where that remains um, a critical issue, women who um, are lesbian, bisexual, trans women, all of these women face um, extraordinarily, um, you know, repugnant forms of online violence, but also the impacts tend to be more extreme as well. And I'll leave it there for now. Thank you, Julie. That was a very detailed view of what's happening uh, globally to female journalists. And, and I, 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 I think that was a fascinating overview you gave. It has a lot that we have to reflect on in Canada. Um, thinking about this, I, I maybe would like to, now we'll move into a discussion among the group and, and we are in about 20 minutes, take questions from the audience. So whoever is watching this, uh, if it's on YouTube or on Facebook, please, please uh, ask a question. I'll look at that and I'll read it out in, in, in a few minutes. But I, I'd like to maybe start discussion among us. Um, um, Julie, you, you gave a pretty a detailed view of, of online violence targeting women journalists, sorry, uh, women, yeah, women journalists and how it manifests itself in a variety of ways. Um, but I'd like to ask the authors uh, of the report, um, Christina and Lucina, um, did you see any categories of online violence in the Canadian context that really stood out that, that, that jumped out as different from, from other countries or is it similar? Just like to hear some reflections from you about what are the main kind of categories or patterns of this online violence that you've that you've studied. Yeah. Thank you. I can start and then Christina can can fill in if I'm missing anything. Overall, uh, you know, I would say we prefer to talk about online harms broadly to in fact encompass the content and the behavior that is illegal, including violence, as well as the content and behavior that might not be illegal per se, but in fact takes an incredible toll on the women that are targeted. For example, disinformation campaigns. So I would say in general, what we see, particularly on the disinformation side, is that women in politics are targeted with the spread of really um, overwhelming amounts of deceptive or inaccurate information and images. The images part is in fact very, very key to go along with, with the content and that those narratives really um, draw on the concepts that are um, misogynist, um, gender stereotypes, um, thoughts around the role of women that ultimately undermine uh, their perception of their abilities and uh, undermine their participation in, in public life. So really, we see attacks that uh, tend to undermine women's abilities, what they have accomplished, and over and over, uh, you know, are very sexualized. And so, uh, those are patterns we have seen in Canada, we see in other places too. 
the topics that tend to attract attract most of those um, most of those negative comments might be different from country to country, and very often are linked, in fact, to kind of like um, links and topics that are dear to liberal actors, very often right-wing actors. So more and more we heard, for example, the women interviewed through the panels talking about how they were particularly targeted when they talked about issues of climate, uh, issues of women's rights, and issues of immigration. So those were the three topics that came uh, out being really, really uh, the main uh, triggers in some ways. And and in this respect, you know, it's interesting because I think it's really important to talk again also as Julie and Christina have done of um, what's making these type of attacks not only possible, but even, um, you know, so, so common. And this is, in fact, is going back to the algorithmic design and uh, to the algorithmic preferences. Uh, The truth is that we see that those types of attacks tend not to happen, in fact, by chance, but are really happening by design. We see a fair amount of coordination, um, a fair amount of politically motivated attacks that very often are also linked, um, you know, to politicians themselves from opposing parties that are leading in some of those attacks. So those those were the patterns that we have seen in Canada specifically, and that are reflected in fact with patterns also from other countries. And women of color, uh, you know, in fact reported the compounding effect of attacks also in Canada that are both sexist and racist. Christina, do you have any, uh, would you like to also address this or? Just the only thing I would add is that, you know, this situation has been made worse by the pandemic um, because of the, you know, the the very concerning picture of online abuse against women in politics in Canada, as we're talking about, has been exacerbated by the increasing reliance of social media. So this is a common theme that we heard from the panel discussions and pulled out into the report because it has been, you know, the main and sometimes only way that elected leaders communicate with their constituency during the pandemic. And this has been reported by UN Women also looking at online violence spreading under the shadow of the pandemic and a disproportionate amount of attacks aimed at women in the form of sexual harassment and stalking, sex trolling, Zoom bombing, you know, with unsolicited pornographic videos displayed while women were participating in online social events meant to undermine them. So there were specific journalists in Canada who spoke about this and members of political parties, you know, report being attacked for tweeting, you know, a picture of her, of them getting the vaccine itself. So there's just an intermingling of all of these issues that make it particularly problematic. And for women who are elected leaders, they cannot just choose to not engage with their constituents or have um, a presence that is offline. They would not be able to do their fundamental job if that was the case. Thank you very much, Christina. Um, uh, Julie, I have a question for you. Um, In the report, The Chilling Global Trends in Online Violence Against Women Journalists, it states that there's nothing virtual about online violence and that it's become 
the new frontline journalism safety. I, I'm wondering, you know, we, we tend to still hear people say, oh, it happens online, there's yeah. no impact offline. I'm wondering if you could delve a little bit more into this and, 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 and tell us all about, about how this is the front line of, of, of women's sure. safety. Sure, I mean, it's, it's a really significant um, journalism safety issue around the world. Um, just to give you one um, example that, that breaks things down in terms of the intersectional experience um, of women journalists, uh, those who identify as uh, being from Arab backgrounds uh, who participated in our survey were nearly three times as likely to say that they had experienced offline violence connected to online attacks than uh, white women were. Uh, and I think that really um, highlights some of the, the difficulties associated with this problem. We also have um, to face the reality that there are not just political actors, but state actors um, using this um, form of online uh, attack as a way of really trying to chill critical independent journalism uh, that's designed to hold uh, other you know, leaders to account, um, using it as a weapon of war, if you like, um, and certainly uh, as, as a weapon of um, very aggressive diplomacy. And so there's so much complexity here, um, and it's important to understand that the risks of offline violence connected to online attacks are very real. They are, um, again, uh, escalating in the context of doxing attacks and doxing, as um, our colleagues explained earlier, uh, relates to the public um, release of identifying information um, about women usually. So uh, in the case of my research, it's women journalists, particularly those reporting on disinformation, reporting on human rights, uh, reporting on the far right, um, who see themselves... Uh, the subject of attacks that include publishing their physical address, publishing details about the whereabouts of their children, and the threats of violence against them are not just threats of rape and murder, there are also threats of rape and murder against their children. Um, one of the women we interviewed, for example, in fact, two of the women we interviewed, um, had reported uh, to the police threats to rape their babies. In, in one case, um, a newborn baby. Uh, and so there are very significant um, physical threats that radiate not just uh, to, the, to the women's colleagues but also to their families. But on top of that, we need to accept that the psychological damage um, being done to women journalists and other human rights uh, defenders and political um, figures who, who are women um, is very severe and it's debilitating. Um, so we have to understand and respect that injuries um, to journalists, when we talk about journalism safety, uh, which is protected um, under international human rights law that, that is designed to enable journalists to do their jobs um, in, in defence of uh, democracy in many settings, that we have to recognise this sort of injury as, as being, um, you know, debilitating but also having an impact on freedom of expression and that I think should be a trigger for uh, countries like Canada and other um, you know liberal democracies with proud traditions um, of upholding press freedom and freedom of expression to really act um, decisively to address this problem. Thank you Julie. Um, you, you, your comments make me think uh, you know that that we have this is not just about individuals being targeted and having it stay with individuals. It's, it's a wider societal problem. And 
And I'd like to explore and have maybe all, all three of you give feedback on this, but, but what's the consequences um, of these online harms targeting women journalists and political leaders for freedom of speech and democracy? Because I, I think that's key. Uh, we've heard women say that, young women say, we don't want to participate, we don't want to be in journalism anymore, we're being targeted. What, mm -hmm. like, if we don't get hold of this, what, what could be the negative impacts for freedom of speech and, 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 and future of democracies? Who would like to um, go first? Um, I'll start us off and would love to hear from Julie and Lucina on this because it's a really essential part of the dialogue that I think we have to flip the script on. So we've got to really balance the, the theoretical notion around freedom of speech prevailing online against the reality of what the content is that's actually thriving. As Julie mentioned, uh, hate speech, disinformation, conspiracy is really a hallmark of social media now. So we should be worried about freedom of speech, but of the women who are attacked and silenced online. So we see that young women report being discouraged from seeking leadership roles within which limits their freedom of expression. There are women who are self-censoring or totally engaging from social media, and that has a chilling effect on freedom of expression for women, including journalists and particularly minority women. Uh, for women, as I mentioned before, who can't afford to disengage because communicating online is part of their job, like women in politics and journalists, the psychological toll on them and their families is insurmountable. And more broadly, gender disinformation and online abuse against women and politics is increasingly used, being used with these covert intentions, as we mentioned. So I think we're in a stronger position to curtail this type of disinformation when we look at the harm being perpetuated and related regulation, not just focusing on what is legal or illegal content. So in other parts of the world, in the US where I am, you know, we are stuck on that First Amendment um, point, which is really missing the forest for this trees. And, you know, the approach can sometimes come under criticism from human rights groups who are concerned that regulations that focus on illegal content might actually um, represent dangerous precedents for authoritarian countries. Uh, with legal frameworks that don't protect that freedom of expression in some of those countries. That is an important conversation to have, but the assumption that authoritarian regimes aren't already benefiting from existing irresponsible practices of digital platforms really requires further scrutiny. And as Julie was saying, with the efforts aimed to silence uh, women journalists, often coming from either government, authoritarian actors, or political parties, we really need to sophisticate our thinking around this conversation. Thank you uh, very much, Christina. Lucina, Julie, would you, do you have anything else to add on, on, on this point? Yeah, I'd like to um, add something. Uh, in fact, um, flipping the switch is the appropriate uh, description. We need to stop thinking, for example, of press freedom as a problem for journalists uh, and start thinking of, of press freedom and, and the protection of uh, journalists, particularly women journalists who are so much more vulnerable uh, to online violence in particular, as we're discussing. When you expose women journalists or fail to address the exposure of women journalists to online violence, you're not just messing with their freedom of expression rights. You're not just diminishing their capacity to do their jobs and participate 
uh, in public debate and to speak truth to power, to do accountability reporting, for example, you're actually chilling everybody's freedom of expression because press freedom is a collective right. It's the right to access information. It's the right to access credible and reliable information, which the pandemic has surely demonstrated is vital um, to public health. And so there needs to be a collective effort to address these problems, which, um, and when we're talking here about viral disinformation, we're talking about networked misogyny, um, coordinated gaslighting, all of these things are enabled um, by uh, the platforms as much as they're sourced and instigated uh, by or sourced to and instigated by um, political actors. So when we think about um, freedom of expression, we need to think in terms of protecting people's rights to practice freedom of expression, not by allowing unfettered speech in the classic kind of um, misunderstanding of the First Amendment, um, dare I argue, but also by um, ensuring that people cannot use hate speech and other forms um, of online violence to steal another's right to speak. And that's what we're dealing with here. Thank you very much. Uh, Lucina, do you have any comments on this? Yeah, so I, I so fully agree uh, with Julian, with Christina. And I would just like to add that over and over in every country, we actually see that women's rights are the litmus test for human rights and democracy. And when they are attacked, we already know that the human rights and democracy is in fact under attack. And right now, online attacks and disinformation is being used in fact to silence those very people that are fighting for real freedom of expression and for real democracy and for real good governance in very many countries. So the conversation really around ensuring uh, freedom of expression must be on ensuring freedom of expression for everyone, including women and minorities, and not only the bullies, not only the very powerful, and not only the ones that have the means to organize coordinated campaigns of inauthentic actors, in fact, silencing those very same activists that want to defend uh, our freedoms. Thank you, Lucina. Um, all of you mentioned in some ways about the business model of social media platforms and algorithms as, as, as being a problem. And I think it's very interesting for a discussion in Canada where, where the government wants to legislate social media giants for a whole or, or regulate them for a whole set of reasons. But I'm wondering if, if either of you could comment, like what are the, in the design of these platforms, what is the main issue? If you could speak to the Prime Minister of Canada or to the Minister, like, like, what, what would you say that is the biggest problem? Is it, is it echo chambers? Is it the algorithms aren't publicly audited? Like, what do you think is is wrong with the design of these platforms and how they help amplify um, online harms towards women? Mm. I'll start us off, but I, I it. <laughs> There are so many problems, it's hard to characterize it. Here's what I would say essentially, is that these are ultimately products that a company is not responsible for creating reasonable standards around the impact of those products. So Canadian lawmakers and leaders really have an opportunity here uh, to use the instrument of public policy and regulation to incentivize companies to take responsibility for those products and protect people against harm, as we would with any well-heeled industry in the past. 
such as tobacco companies and oil and gas industries. So we have to, of course, recognize that these are private companies. It's their purview to determine their own business model. But governments can and should create this regulatory framework that sets a ground for better social media standards. And it is well overdue time uh, in order to move forward with this. And when we looked into Canada, there's certainly no shortage of ideas worth exploring that would use some existing liability frameworks, for example, to increase incentives for protections. In fact, you, you see the Women's Legal Education and Action Fund based in Toronto has 14 recommendations uh, in a new report around deplatforming misogyny. Um, so, you know, I think we have to get a, give a little bit less airtime to so-called solutions that aren't really aimed in a meaningful way. So if they don't involve the business model, then we should, you know, put those on a secondary tier and instead really go after the power that I think government has and is showing in other parts of the world to get around these companies that aren't taking responsibility for their products. Thank you, Christina. Julia or Lucina, do you have any yeah. thoughts on this? Yeah, I'll add to this. Um, I think the fundamental problem is the failure to moderate, to be honest. It's the failure to accept responsibility as publishers. Um, I used to argue differently that we should respect um, that the platforms were not, in fact, publishers. And even the word platforms implies some kind of passivity. You know, it's just we just have this site so people can come and share their hate, their disinformation and occasionally their love and connectivity. Um, and unfortunately, this is not successful. This is, in fact, um, a problem that has been identified even uh, at the UN level um, as being connected to genocide or um, potential genocide. Um, all sorts of hate crimes. Um, and we are now in a position where we can't um, simply sit back and say this is a matter of transforming social values or it's a matter of, um, you know, education, the kind of medium to long-term role of media literacy is one that's constantly trotted out by the platforms, which does what? It puts the onus back on the women who are both meant to be the frontline uh, responders as well as being the primary targets of this online violence that we're talking about. That's utterly unsustainable. Um, so we need to address the, the responsibility, the accountability and the transparency related to those two um, needs with regard to the platforms. Obviously, there's algorithmic work that needs to be done, but the accountability piece is really ultimately going to come down to legislative responses and those legislative responses uh, in places like Canada need to be um, gender sensitive. And by that, uh, and I'm not sure of the situation in Canada, but in many other countries around the world, hate speech where it is used as um, a tool to oppress and where laws exist to try to prevent that from happening, often misogyny is not counted as a, as a form of hate speech. You know, racism is... Um, abuse of sexual um, of people on the basis of their sexual orientation is considered a form of hate speech, but misogyny and sexism aren't. So we need um, reform in tandem there with regard to platform accountability and responsibility, and also uh, with reference to um, the ways in which hate speech uh, laws are used to try to address this problem. Thank you, Julie. That was, um, I think you, you brought up a really fascinating point there about how misogyny is not considered hate and, and there's discussions in Canada about this right now. 
uh, particularly after the, there's been a rise in the incel movement that's resulted in, in yes. physical uh, attacks. And it's something that that's happening online that we're looking at. Um, Lucina, I'm sure you've got something that you'd like to add in or something that written report about this, this, this question. Yeah, just a couple of things, uh, you know, definitely in the report, we talk about the importance of transparency, we, we talk about, you know, the importance of better risk assessment practices uh, from social media platforms. We also talk really about the importance of looking at the framework of online harms, which is a framework that allows us to actually address not only content that's unlawful, but also content that is per se lawful, but in fact can bring extreme harms to the women that are targeted. And to do that, of course, with a gender lens. So I think that those points are very, very important. I also think that in general, uh, we must understand and approach this question as um, you know, something that's not necessarily very new or very different than what, in fact, countries are doing with many other industries. So the reality is that we have been allowing uh, the technological industry and social media platforms to behave in a way that we wouldn't allow from pretty much any other industry. Before even a food reaches your plate, there is all a set of assessments that the company producing that food needs to show that, you know, to prove in fact that that food isn't poisoned. Uh, they are not just allowed to put something in your plate and then if it turns out to be poisoned to kill a bunch of people, you know, they go back and say, well, so sorry, we're going to try to do better next time or show us the food that is poisoned and we're going to take that one away while continuing to producing our food in the very same way that we have always done for everything else and in every other circumstance. We would never allow that from agri-food company. We would never allow that from drug companies to put, you know, to put uh, drugs in, in our body that haven't been properly tested, where it wasn't checked which kind of consequences they might be having. And for them to just, uh, you know, produce their products in secrecy. We have allowed, however, social media companies to do that under this idea of freedom of expression that, again, has been very wrongly interpreted in this, in this respect. And we can no longer do that. We just have to start treating social media companies in the way we treat so many other industries, including because social media companies have proved over and over their unwillingness to address the problems that they cause. And they have externalized uh, the consequence and the cost uh, of the harm that that happens through their work on all of us, on states and on society, and we can really no longer allow for that to happen. Thank you, Lucina. Well, time has flown, and we have ten minutes left. Um, sorry that it's gone. We could discuss this for another hour between us, but I'd like to now go to the audience because we're getting some questions. Um, the first um, question is from Celia Fuentes. And she asks, she says, I'm a recent uh, data science grad. Are there technical resources to help inform, address the algorithmic aspects that make online violence against women journalists and other groups possible? Um, who, who might want to try to answer uh, um, Celia's question? Um, I'll have a go if nobody 
else is willing. Um, this is one that I would normally uh, flick to my, my colleagues at the University of Sheffield, the computer scientists who uh, deal with this very question. Um, but if I can try and channel them, um, Kalina Boncheva and uh, Diana Maynard, um, they would uh, say that um, first we need to understand um, the patterns and manifestations of online violence um, through analysis of big sets of data uh, because until you actually understand how um, the algorithms are being weaponized um, and how uh, the platforms themselves uh, are being abused or being allowed to be abused um, by nefarious actors, um, we can't uh, address adequately the problem with algorithms. Um, but they would also probably say that one of the issues that we have um, to contend with is that algorithms are the product of, um, you know, human ingenuity uh, originally, right? And um, when those algorithms are, are developed without um, a central uh, focus on human rights, without um, an awareness of consequences um, of their manipulation, then they're bound to be exploitable um, with potentially devastating impacts. Just ask, uh, you know, the, the Rohingya people of, um, of Myanmar. Um, so uh, there are certainly um, at an academic level um, many papers that have been written about this. Uh, it's not my specific area of expertise, but I'd encourage you um, to look at um, the techniques uh, that have been applied through natural language processing um, and big data analysis, for example, as a way of um, trying to focus attention on these issues. I mean, we did two case studies. They're very labour intensive. We looked at millions of posts and we examined the language uh, that's been used in, in, in the most abusive of those uh, posts and we looked at the ways in which networks operated. We need to see examples of that kind of work done internationally so we can also appreciate the nuances um, in different uh, cultural and uh, political contexts. Thank you very much. Uh, Christina Lucino, do you have anything to comment on this or should we move to the next question? Just quickly, and I, it, 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 the pause and response goes to the point that it, it is a black box. Um, and it's unfortunate too, because of that lack of transparency. We don't have the data to know exactly how some of these influence operations work when these issues at high level have been brought to Facebook by lawmakers in other country, the countries. The response has been, well, show us what you're seeing um, when they have all the tools, the data, the engineers at their disposal. Um, so we need more transparency before we can really figure out, is there an AI solution to some of this? How are the algorithms you know, perpetuating this hate? We know the generalities, which is that extremism is able to go further, you know, because of the way that they monetize engagement as a model within the design. Um, but where, you know, exactly the algorithmic, you know, preferences or bias is, you know, we need more data, we need more transparency, we need more, you know, willingness to actually address those with the companies that have all of that in their disposal. Thank you. Lucina, do you have anything or can I move to the next one? You can move. I totally agree with both my both of what my colleagues have said. Oh, wonderful. So we, we have a question coming in from Twitter. Um, and someone says that there's been a lot of focus on the role of, of, of big tech. There's been a, a focus on the role of government in this. But what should civil society be doing? What can civil society do 
to um, to kind of reduce this problem of online harms targeting women. Do you have any thoughts uh, on, on, on what can be ramped up at civil society level? Um, I'd like to comment on that if I can. I think that Please. there's a, a really important function for collaborations between civil society organisations and civil society, if we can understand it, to include academics, um, specialist researchers uh, and collaborations that could, for example, involve journalists so that you end up with powerful, um, highly credible research which also has a narrative uh, built around it that allows the research to travel. Uh, and there needs to be appropriate funding of research of that caliber um, so that we can present the data to the lawmakers who need to be able to justify um, pretty tough decisions, especially in North America, where you're um, you know, surrounded by freedom of expression debates that I would argue misinterpret um, the, you know, the, the rights associated with the First Amendment. Um, additionally, you know, activism. Um, is essential and activism that is grounded um, in research is much more effective. Um, and so, you know, collaboration is key is what I'm trying to say here, but so is targeted funding. Thank you. I, I agree the funding and the collaboration is, is so important and we're, we're starting to see that happen in Canada. I, I, I hope we also see that expand internationally. Uh, Lucina, Christina, do you have any comments on the role of civil societies, particularly in the Canadian context? Mm -hmm. A couple more. I would say that there's a little bit more of a digital forensics investigations that civil society could contribute to in Canada. Um, and understanding it's important to look at this from the gendered disinformation frame, I think will help give us more of the evidence trail to move policymakers and the public around this. Um, I would say more than that, and this falls a little bit into the category of having to manage the fallout of this problem in real time, which we do, is to think about the ways that civil society can provide a enabling environment for women to address these harms, these, you know, threats that are aimed at them and to put out, you know, alternative content that tells a different story. Use the tools of uh, the digital environment in which to counter some of those damning narratives. Now, that cannot resolve this issue. And that's why we didn't really start with this as a solution. Sometimes too much emphasis is put in this arena, but it is important. And an example from the U.S., is the way that a women's disinformation defense project came about in order to address the disinformation aimed at Vice President Harris. And part of their effort was not just analyzing and studying the problem, but really addressing this directly with the platforms, doing advertisements directly to Sheryl Sandberg, um, producing a media guide about how to report responsibly on gender disinformation, and then also providing the alternative message to counter some of the hateful rhetoric and mis- and disinformation aimed at Harris in order to paint a picture of her qualities and abilities you know, in her, in her race for office. So I do think civil society, unfortunately, has to take that uh, role on in this phase where women are being attacked and undermined. We need to bolster and encourage a unified approach on all levels. Thank you, Christina. Yeah. Lucina, do you have anything to, to add on this last point? 
Yeah, I would just like to add, I think that civil society has a crucial role to play in holding policymakers accountable, in really demanding, for example, from Canada, who has a feminist government and feminist foreign policy, that they really uh, walk the talk when it comes to making sure, for example, that if we look at regulations for digital platforms, or if we look at standards, that they are gender sensitive and they, in fact, take into account the harm that women, women in politics, women journalists, young women, particularly women of color, are being targeted with every day. And so making sure that the gender perspective is included in any type of standard regulation conversation and making sure that women are really leading in many ways the conversations on uh, creating a new digital social contract. I think that's really key very often we see still uh you know a lot of those conversations around democracy and technology not taking into account the gender perspective as uh, clearly and directly and strongly as they should and civil society has a clear uh, and decisive role to play in in this respect thank you we have one minute left and someone just posed a question so i'm going to read it out but i'm only going to want to ask one of you to respond to it. So, so we'll see whoever clicks first. Um, we have Fanny has written, can you give an example of content that is lawful, but detrimental to women journalists, politicians online? Does anyone have an example that they could, they could, they could bring forward on this? Well, there's um, many, many, sorry. There are many examples around the world. And this, this highlights one of the key problems that, um, you know, these are North American companies that are having impacts uh, internationally in the context of many different countries' um, legal uh, and normative frameworks. And, for example, are uh, you know, in countries where there is no um, acknowledgement of misogyny as a form of hate speech, you could make um, statements, heinous statements about an individual woman um, but this would be considered even under the laws of, you know, country X uh, to be lawful because um, lying and abuse are not per se illegal unless in certain contexts these lies and forms of abuse um, can, can be covered uh, by forms of um, hate speech legislation. So I would just come back to that point and underscore the need to recognise this as violence in the same way that we recognise economic and psychological violence against women as part of a pattern of domestic violence recognized at law. The same is true of online violence. Thank you very much, Julie. So with that being said, I just like on behalf of my colleagues, uh, Phil Dawson, Marie Lamanche, and uh, Lauren Selim, uh, we wanna thank you for joining us today, uh, Christina, Julie, and Lutina. It was a fascinating discussion. Um, particularly, I wanna thank Lutina and Christina for the wonderful work you did in writing this white paper. As I said, uh, it's online now. We're going to send it to everyone, um, but you can Google it. Um, and and I think it's it's going to make a wonderful contribution to helping Canadian civil society, academics, and government think about this problem and what we can do to to end it. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you.